If you have a Bible, if you would open it to Job chapter 34. Last Sunday, we met a new character in the book of Job. He's introduced in chapter 32. His name is Elihu, which means he is my God. His father is Barakel, which means God has blessed. He's of the tribe of Buzz, which in Genesis 22, Buzz is the brother of Uz, who was the nephew of Abraham. Several things should be noted about Elihu's heritage. I mentioned the first last week that he is tied to the line of Abraham. His name, as well as that of his father, identify him as a faithful worshiper of God. But I didn't mention this. It may, in fact, be that he was related to Job, unlike the other three men, because uh, he is of the line of Buzz, who is the brother of Uz. And if you look at the first verse of the first chapter of Job, we are told in the land of Uz, there lived a man whose name was Job. So it very well may be that Elihu is directly related uh, to Job. Elihu has a heritage that the three friends lack. He also brings with him a youth. He is younger than them. That's why he hasn't said anything up to this point. Let the old guy speak, the ones who have wisdom. Um, it is suggested that one of the reasons we are told about his father and what tribe he comes from and all that is because of his youth. But also because what he has to say, I think, is important. Um, we're told he's young, but we also hear that he is angry. In chapter 32, verses 2 to 5, as he's being introduced, four times there are references made to his anger. He's angry because the whole dialogue between Job and his friends has been argued badly on both sides, because Job has held on to his innocence, and in the process, as Elihu sees it, he's made himself more righteous than God, because the three friends have failed to answer him and because they have nothing more to say. So Elihu feels like he has to speak up. He's an angry young man. Before we move on, I would just remind you of the function of Elihu's speeches uh, here in the book of Job. I think, I suggested, that he in fact prepares us for what's going to come in the chapters when God speaks. Um, he has something of value to say. Let's not overlook that. It's not just sort of fluff in between Job's last statement and when God speaks. Um, the fact that what he says is important, I think is seen in the fact that he gives four speeches. All the other friends, uh, Eliphaz and Bildad gave three each and Zophar two. So he speaks more than they do. Um, I think he does have something of value to say. But he, he not only prepares us for what God has to say, he provides a break between Job's challenge to God and God's answer. Had God spoken immediately after Job gave his challenge, it would seem that God was at Job's beck and call, that God felt like he had to hurry up and answer Job. And in fact, we don't have that. We have this break, these chapters, these four speeches, and then God will speak. God will speak when he's good and ready. He takes the initiative, he keeps it to himself. 
these chapters, I think, should reinforce in our thinking that God is not forced into a quick reply. Even as intense as Job's statements are and his challenges are, God will speak when he's good and ready. He acts in his own time. These speeches from Elihu give us a place to pause and to recognize, in fact, that God is free. He doesn't have to do what we say. He doesn't have to respond to us when we call upon him. Why do I mention this again? Because I mentioned it last week. I mention it because beginning today, I think Elihu will lose us. Last week, I think we were on his side, this angry young man, and he sort of spells out what good communication involves. You have to listen. You have to discern what's being said. Um, His openness, his compassion, well, they're gone. Beginning in chapter 34, uh, we will hear nothing of this at all. And I think he loses us. Any sense of connection we might have felt with this angry young man, we lose in the speeches that follow. In many ways, in the speeches, he is just rehashing what Job has said and what the friends have said. But he becomes even more solidified in in the position. He does something else that the friends did not do, and that is he addresses Job directly. I don't know if you remember, but when the friends would speak, they would sort of we could imagine sort of look off into the distance and Job would say, hey, look at me, I'm right here. And they never said, Job, you. It's always, you know, when a man does certain things, he should expect things would happen to him. Uh, Not Elihu. I mean, he's going to point the finger at Job and call Job by name. The second speech begins here in chapter 34. Verse 1. Then Elihu said, Hear my words, you wise men. Listen to me, you men of learning. For the ear tests words as the tongue tastes food. Let us discern for ourselves what is right. Let us learn together what is good. Who is Elihu speaking to? Is it the three friends? Possibly. Are there other people standing around? I I would imagine so. If we're not careful in our mind, we might see this, this... this wreck of a man, Job, and his three friends, and that's it. Um, I think there are other people there. And Job is, or Elihu is addressing them as well. He calls on those people who are listening to hear his words, to listen to him, to discern for themselves what is right, and together they will learn what is good. We find in this section the verse, For the ear tests words as the tongue tastes food. It's a wonderful analogy for how we are to discern and listen with discrimination. We don't simply listen to everything that is said and say, well, that must be true. It's like if it's in the paper, if it's in the news, it must be right. No, you in fact have to discriminate. You have to test the words. So we agree at the outset with Elihu that there is a place for, lear- for hearing, for listening, for discerning, and for learning. And we must train ourselves. These things don't happen automatically. 
one would think, well, to listen, you just have to sit there and, and listen. But no, it in fact requires effort. You have to discern and learn. But here at the beginning of the second speech, Elihu goes off track. And in this, he has assumed that in the matter of divine providence, what God is doing in a person's life, specifically Job, we can in fact make a judgment. We will listen, we will hear, we will discern, and we can figure out, let's learn together, let's put our heads together, and we can figure out in fact why these things have happened to Job. That is, if we just put our heads together, we will come to understand why God does what he does in our lives. And it's simply not true. This is not the case. Consider that when all is said and done in the book of Job, Job is not told by God about the conversations with Satan. Remember back in chapters 1 and 2? In which God allowed Satan to take all that Job had and then allowed Satan to take away his physical health. God does not explain anything to Job. And consider that we know more than Job did. We know about the conversation in heaven between God and Satan. We don't know why God allowed this to happen. We do not. All these centuries, dare one say millennia later, we still do not know why. But Elihu says, listen, boys, if we can put our heads together, we can figure this out. And this is the first of two serious miscalculations and errors on his part. In verses 5 through 33, Elihu makes his presentation. First of all, he summarizes Job's complaint. Look at verses 5 and 6. Job says... I am innocent, but God denies me justice. Although I am right, I am considered a liar. Although I am guiltless, his arrow afflict, or inflicts an incurable wound. So there's four parts to Job's complaint. I'm innocent. God has denied me justice. I'm considered a liar because all these things that have happened to me just testify against me. And lastly, God has afflicted me with an incurable wound. This is how Elihu understands Job's position. Now Elihu gives his point of view, verses 7, 8, and 9. And you'll notice he keeps referring to Job by name. What man is like Job, who drinks scorn like water? He keeps company with evildoers. He associates with wicked men. For he says it profits a man nothing when he tries to please God. You know, where the friends implied or spoke indirectly, Elihu just flat out accuses Job of being a hardened sinner. He drinks scorn like water. And the picture is that of a very thirsty person in a desert who comes upon water and gulps it down. This is how Elihu sees Job. Job has accepted the scorn that has been heaped upon him without being embarrassed, without being shamed at all. He's been scorned, and yet he keeps, to res he keeps responding. As in, I have this in my notes, as if Job is saying, bring it on. Make it bad. Come on, just hit me with everything you've got. And Elihu's like, 
Doesn't this prove what a wretch this man is? He has joined the company of the wicked because Job is convinced there is no profit in trying to please God. So, what is Elihu's premise? Verses 10 through 15. So listen to me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays a man for what he has done. He brings upon him what his conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all mankind would perish together and man would return to the dust. Here Elihu joins the three friends. He has embraced the belief of exact retribution, something that we see, for example, in the book of Proverbs, this cause and effect. And the idea is not merely that an action carries within itself its own consequences, a la karma, but that God, in fact, judges every deed and renders to its doer the appropriate reward or punishment. Verse number 11 could have been spoken by any of the three friends. He repays a man for what he has done. He brings upon him what his conduct deserves. It's all cause and effect. That's how the friends see it. That's how Elihu now sees it. Cause and effect, there is no grace. There is no Psalm 103. Do you remember Psalm 103? The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. Elihu, you're wrong. But he has joined the three friends and now condemned Job. And he does this imagining that he is defending God. Look at verse 16. We'll read to verse number 30. If you have understanding, hear this. In other words, if you've got a brain, listen to this, okay? Listen to what I say. Can he who hates justice govern? Will you condemn the just and mighty one? Is he not the one who says to kings, you are worthless, and to nobles, you are wicked, who shows no partiality to princes and does not favor the rich over the poor? For they are all the work of his hands. They die in an instant in the middle of the night. The people are shaken and they pass away. The mighty are removed without human hand. His eyes are on the ways of men. He sees their every step. There is no dark place, no deep shadow where evildoers can hide. God has no need to examine men further that they should come before him for judgment. Without inquiry, he shatters the mighty and sets up others in their place. Because he takes note of their deeds, he overthrows them in the night and they are crushed. He punishes them for their wickedness where everyone can see them. Because they turned from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. They caused the cry of the poor to come before him so that he heard the cry of the needy. But if he remains silent, who can condemn him? If he hides his face, who can see him? Yet he is over man and nation alike to keep a godless man from ruling, from laying snares for the people. 
Here we come to the second miscalculation, the second error of Elihu. And that is, he believes that he can and should defend God. He points to God's power in verses 13 to 20. The continuing existence of the human race is proof of that, because if God removed his spirit, then everything would go back to dust. And God's knowledge of things in verses 21 to 27. He sees every step. He has no need. In other words, there doesn't need to be a final judgment at the end of time because God has seen everything that everyone has done. You don't have to wait till the end for it all to be brought up. And he shatters the powerful. But one gets the feeling, at least I do as you read this, that Elihu sees God as a powerful, impersonal administrator of justice. He's sort of a bureaucrat keeping records of things. His way of understanding God is that of power and might. It's all about power. God has the power. And he speaks of justice, and in some ways we would want to embrace what Elihu has to say, but not a word about divine grace. Not a word. So he calls on Job to confess Verse 31, suppose a man says to God, I am guilty, but will offend no more. Teach me what I cannot see. If I have done wrong, I will not do so again. Should God then reward you on your terms when you refuse to repent? You must decide, not I. So tell me what you know. Like the three friends, Elihu has reached the conclusion that Job must confess and say he has done something horrible. I am guilty and will offend no more. Teach me what I cannot see. If I've done wrong, I won't do it again. And he closes the section by, by saying to Job, tell me what you know. Tell me what you know. Apparently, Job does not answer. And since Job does not answer, Elihu renders his verdict. Verse 34. Men of understanding declare, wise men who hear me say to me, Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin he adds rebellion. Scornfully he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. Harsh words. Elihu concludes that Job speaks without knowing what he's talking about. He has no insight. He adds to all his other sins, which have resulted in him being in the condition that he's in. He's added rebellion to this. And he needs to be tested further for answering like a wicked man. In other words, Job has not suffered enough to learn what he needs to learn. He needs to suffer some more so God can teach him what he needs to learn. In the second speech, we see, as I've mentioned, that Elihu makes two serious mistakes. The first is the matter of divine providence in one's life. Specifically, if they put their heads together, they can figure out why these things have happened to Job. And secondly, he believes that he can or should defend God. This is a common response uh, when people question God. Trust me, as a pastor, people come and ask me, why did God allow this to happen? 
as though somehow I could know. And if I did know, uh, or if I don't know, I have to defend God and say, listen, God's a, a good guy and you know, he knows what he's doing. Um, but I think we do that to ourselves sometimes when something happens to us. And, and our, our initial instinct is to sort of lash out against God and then we're like, we back off, we're like, no, God knows what he's doing and, and somehow we, we feel like we have to defend what God is doing in our lives. In this, Elihu is wrong. But he does get one thing right, and I must mention it. Elihu warns Job that he will have to abandon his complaint against God as well as his assertion of innocence if he's ever to be reconciled to God. You can't keep saying, I'm right, I'm right, I'm right, and expect there to be a reconciliation. You can't keep saying, I am innocent, and expect you to be able to be reconciled to the Creator. In this, Elihu is preparing us for what God will say, and in Job's response in chapter 42. But the price is high. The price that Elihu is asking for is high. Job must suffer some more. He hasn't suffered enough. As I said at the beginning, Elihu loses us here in this second speech. And he turns from being a compassionate, even though he is angry, a compassionate person to one who wishes that his relative, Job, would suffer even more. How did this happen? How did he go from being a compassionate person to a person without grace and without compassion? Well, I've told you, but I'll repeat it again. He makes two critical errors. The first is that he assumes that he can understand why God is doing what he is doing in one's life. If we put our heads together, we can figure this out. If you read this verse number four of chapter 34, it sounds eerily familiar. Go back to Genesis 3. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. He's like, boys, let's think this through and we can figure it out. The second is he believes that he can and should defend God. This is what he sets out to do in the second speech. I realize here, at least for me, that I am walking on a razor's edge. I do not want to suggest for a moment that we don't have the ability to reason that we should not use that God-given ability, that we don't have the ability to discern right from wrong, or that we're not to use that ability. Of course we are. That we should believe blindly without thought. Absolutely not. God has given us minds and we are to use them. And I'm not suggesting for a moment that we should not stand for God's holiness and righteousness treating him with reverence and awe. So what is the problem? What, where is the line that Elihu crossed in this chapter? He has, and I believe it is seen in his treatment of Job, a complete loss of compassion for Job. And an even more severe judging of the man than he has had to endure from the three friends thus far. We are called as God's people to live in tension. There's a tension 
between the reality of who God is in his revelation and the reality of the fallenness of creation. And we can't always figure it out. We can't always understand. I don't know that we can figure it out, but we don't always understand if God is in control, why are these things happening? Why is this happening to Job? I find, generally speaking, it certainly doesn't apply to everyone, in Christianity today, that there are two camps. On the one hand, those who stand for what is right, based on God's revelation in creation, in scripture, and in the Lord Jesus. But they seem to lack compassion. There seems to be a lack of graciousness. On the other hand, you have those who call themselves Christians, or part of the Christian tradition, who have so diluted and almost destroyed the truth in a variety of ways, yet they seem to be very compassionate for those who are in need. I would say for both, there's a lack of tension. For those who stand for what is true, they, st- they don't struggle with the reality of the fallenness of the world and why these things happen. For others have, in a sense, turned their back on the truth, and yet they have great compassion for those in need. Both sides claim to have all the answers, and the reality is no one does. We have some of the answers. God has revealed his truth. But we live in tension between knowing and not knowing at the same time. We come to the third speech. Chapter 35. In chapter 34, verse 9, Elihu mentions that Job has said it profits a man nothing when he tries to please God. In other other words, what's the use in being good? Elihu now will deal with this further uh, by referring to two more questions from Job. What do I gain by not sinning? Verse 31. And why doesn't God answer my prayers? Job didn't actually ask this question as much as Eliphaz has answered it. He's answering a question that has not been asked. Um, Let's look at this. Verses 1 through 8. What do I gain by not sinning? Then Elihu said, Do you think this is just? You say I will be cleared by God. Yet you ask him, What profit is it to me? And what do I gain by not sinning? I would like to reply to you and to your friends with you. Look up at the heavens and see. Gaze at the clouds so high above you. If you sin, how does that affect him? If your sins are many, what does that do to him? If you are righteous, what do you give to him? Or what does he receive from your hand? Your wickedness affects only a man like yourself and your righteousness only the sons of men. How would you answer Elihu here? Or Job, as he imagines this is what Job is saying. Why, in fact, should we do what is right? Elihu gives two answers. Neither is satisfactory. On the one hand, he makes God so far away, he's transcendent, he's the holy other, that he is untouchable by human sin. On the other hand, he sees sin as something that only deals with the human condition. In verse 8, Job is told that sin only affects the person and the community, not God. 
And I think on some level we might want to agree with him that sin does in fact affect the individual. It does affect the community of which that person is a member, whether it be family or clan, neighborhood. But I don't agree with the main thrust of his argument. That is, God is unaffected by our actions. That only the human situation is affected by human actions. Elihu argues you only have to look up and see that God is so much higher. He's beyond the clouds. He is not affected by anything evil that we can do. Nothing anyone does either hurts God or helps God. This is something that Eliphaz had said back in chapter 22. But would you agree with that? Would you agree? If someone were to say God is perfect and complete, he's not being capable of being added to by human goodness, he's not capable of being diminished by human wickedness, would you not agree? We can't add anything to God's holiness. We can't detract any from God's holiness. So does that mean God doesn't care what we do? It really doesn't affect him. It doesn't impact him either way. If that's the case, if it doesn't affect him, then what is justice to God? Why is God concerned with justice at all? Wait a minute, hasn't Elihu just sabotaged his own argument? Based on the premise that God is indifferent to when it comes to human activity, then why should Job suffer more? Why is Job wrong for claiming to be innocent if God's not concerned, if God's not affected at all? If only Elihu could have heard the conversation when God said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? There is no one on earth like him. He is blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. What is the answer to Elihu's thing? Yes, Elihu, God is beyond the clouds. He is transcendent, but he is here among us. He is in his creation. And we are told by the apostle Paul but we don't even have to go to the New Testament. We can stay in the book of Genesis and see that God is grieved when we sin. It grieved God that he had made mankind when he saw wickedness. Paul tells us, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. God is, in fact, affected by our sin. then why doesn't God answer prayer? Verses 9 to 15. Men cry out under a load of oppression. They plead for relief from the arm of the powerful. But no one says, where is God my maker, who gives songs in the night, who teaches more to us than the beast of the earth and makes us wiser than the birds of the air? He does not answer when men cry out because of the arrogance of the wicked. Indeed, God does not listen to their empty plea. The Almighty pays no attention to it. How much less then will he listen when you say that you do not see him, that your case is before him, and you must wait for him? And further, that his anger never punishes. He does not take the least notice of wickedness. This is sort of a continuation of the whole matter of the nature of God as it relates to the suffering of Job. 
As I said earlier, Job's question is not stated as much as it is answered. Job never said this, but Elihu's reading between the lines, and the question is, why doesn't God answer my prayers? Before jumping in, let's, let's consider for a moment, have you ever asked, why doesn't God answer my prayer? In one of our hymns today, uh, Spirit of God descend upon my heart, teach me the patience of unanswered prayer. God does not seemingly answer our prayers. But Elihu's got it figured out. He knows why God doesn't answer our prayers. Verse 12, because of pride, the arrogance of the wicked. Verse 13, because of wrong motives, empty plea. And then verse 14, a lack of faith. When you say you do not see him. And again, on some level, we might agree with Elihu. James, after all, wrote in his epistle, you do not have because you do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives. But two problems present themselves. First of all, who can ever say, I have prayed perfectly, that there's been no pride, there's been no wrong motive, there's been no lack of faith in my praying? Is any human prayer without mixed motives? I think we'd have to say no. Here, Elihu is wrong. But secondly, he is wrong because none of these are true in Job's case. It isn't a question of pride. It isn't a question of wrong motives or a lack of faith. In fact, Job is appealing to God precisely because he knows that God is there. Elihu, after a promising start, is really beginning to disappoint us. He is an illustration at best that human wisdom on its own, this is what it can offer to God, and it's not very much. He presents the human perspective, and it doesn't take us very far. Why? Because his view of God is one who is manageable, one who is predictable, and one he can understand. God's ways to him are clear. He knows why these things have happened to Job, and he knows what God needs to do more. He needs to make Job suffer some more so that Job can learn. The reality is that God is not predictable. God is not manageable. Get him to do the things we want him to do. In some ways, his ways are not clear to us. We do not understand why God does what he does. Then how is it, one might ask, that the God of all creation who created this reality can be seen in such a way as one who is predictable and manageable? One author writes it this way. There is a wildness to the divine ordering of things which the Elihus of the world cannot stand. Elihu cannot bear very much reality. Elihu's God is too tidy and too small. It is worth noting, and this is true throughout the book of Job, but we find it here, that in the midst of, that's wrong, that's wrong, 
a gem will appear. And this is the case in verses 10 and 11. What we find here, I think, if ever you're asked to give a Bible study or to preach a sermon, a three-point outline on the nature of prayer. In prayer, we are first to seek the presence of God. Where is God my maker? Our first priority is, when we pray is to be in the presence of God. Not for God to be in our presence, but for us to come into the presence of God. It doesn't mean that it's wrong for us to ask for freedom from oppression, relief from suffering, healing for broken relationships and other things. But our first priority, where we should begin when we pray, is to be in the presence of God. Sadly, we far too often rush into prayer without an adequate preparation of heart and mind. We just sort of skate into what we imagine is God's presence rather than seriously considering that we are to come into the presence of God. We almost assume that God has nothing better to do than to listen to us. We've been running around all day doing stuff or all week doing stuff and then something comes up and so we turn to God in prayer and we imagine that he's, oh, oh, you know, He's got nothing better to do than to listen to us. He does, in fact, hear us. But there needs to be reverence that is lacking. Does not Jesus tell us that we are to seek first his kingdom and his righteousness? And then the other things will follow? So the first thing about prayer is that we are to seek the presence of God. The second is that in the presence of God, we are to sing songs in the night. It's a beautiful phrase, a phrase of beauty and comfort. Nighttime in scripture is a time, or I'm sorry, nighttime is a symbol of human sin and suffering. We have electricity, so I think we fail to appreciate this. It can be a time of great fear, staring into the darkness and you wonder what's out there. I mean, Sometimes here in the city, if there aren't enough streetlights, we're like, boy, it's kind of dark around here. <laughs> Imagine being in a place where there is no electricity at night. It can be a time of nightmares. But in the presence of God, we can sing songs in the night. Charles Spurgeon wrote that songs in the night come only from God. They are not in the power of man. I think intuitively, Elihu knows the truth of this, but he cannot teach Job about this because, in fact, we have heard Job sing songs in the night. In chapter 19, I know that my Redeemer lives and that in the end he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes, I and not another, how my heart yearns within me. And then in chapter 23, but he knows the way that I take. When he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. We should appreciate, even if Elihu couldn't, that Job is one who could sing songs in the night. The third part of prayer, 
we begin coming into the presence of God and by God's grace being able to sing songs in the midst of darkness. The third thing is we learn the mystery and meaning of what it means to be human. The difference, one of the differences between us and animals is that we pray. But more than that, we can learn to pray in the presence of God. Prayer is not intellectually passive. Or we just sort of put our mind in neutral and just sort of are carried along. It is not to be a sterile experience. It is where we learn that God is God and we're not. We are dependent upon him. And yet, for all these wonderful things that Elihu says in verses 10 and 11, he concludes in verse 16 that Job opens his mouth with empty talk. Without knowledge, he multiplies words. Elihu's human wisdom, limited as it is, has left him cold and heartless toward Job. In these speeches, we find that Elihu sides with the friends against Job. They claim to know why these things have happened to Job, and they do not. We do not know, but they claim that they do. We have more information than they did, but we don't know. But let's say, let's say, for the sake of argument, let's say that the friends did know why these things happened to Job. Where is their compassion? Where is their sense of grace? If, in fact, they believed the things that they did about Job, should they not be compassionate? When you have a friend or someone that you know who has fallen upon difficult times because of bad choices that they make, do you sit there and say, listen, that's because of what you did. It's the choices you made. That's why you're suffering. Do we not, in fact, are we not to reach out with grace and compassion? I mean, for me, the key to knowing that these friends are wrong, forget what they say for a moment, is how they treat Job. Those who have received grace are gracious toward others. And these friends are not. You know, as tempting as it is to want to give answers to someone who is in the midst of difficulties, we should not, we should not presume to speak for God. And we should not feel like we have to defend God. He doesn't need us to defend him. The reality is oftentimes we don't know why God does certain things, why he allows certain things to happen. We should, in the words of the psalmist, be still and know that I am God. In our praying, we should pray in the presence of God, seek first his presence. We should sing songs in the night, in the midst of darkness, and we should learn the mystery of being and what it means to be human and trust in the Almighty. I have to tell you that this week, I think it was Wednesday night, um, I finished the sermon and, and I had a dream. And I dreamed that I was up here speaking, but there was nobody in here. 
there were two screens and there weren't there were like commercials on the screens you know how dreams are they get weird and the screens disappeared and then somebody walked into the building it was mama de la rosa paz's mom we sang her favorite hymn spirit of god descend upon my heart teach me the patience of unanswered prayer as Paz was bedridden for more than 15 years. I don't know why, that God in his providence, that's what he chose. I, I don't know why. I don't know why God did not answer Mama's prayers for Paz. But she learned, and we should learn, the patience of unanswered prayer. To know that we cannot figure it out, can't put our heads together and come up with an answer. Oh, now we know why God has allowed these things to happen. No. Nor should we feel the need to defend God. To say, no, God's really good all the time. No, we don't need to defend him. Elihu has gone over to the dark side with the friends. He has no compassion for Job because he's got it all figured out. He knows all the answers. And I would say, if you know all the answers, then should you not be a person of grace? And Elihu is not. May we learn from his bad example. Let's pray together. Our Father, we have so many questions. We want to know why things happen, why you allow them to happen, why you cause them to happen. We want to believe, we want to trust, and yet we feel like we need answers. And if we don't get them from you, then like Elihu, we begin to make them up. We say, I'm a pretty smart person. I, c I can figure this out. And we forget that you are the Lord God Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And we are those who are made in your image. You are infinite, we are finite. You are holy and we are fallen. I suppose there's a part of our rebellious hearts that does not want to submit, that does not want to give up control, that wants to be able to give an answer for everything. And in this, we are more like Elihu than we care to admit. We live in the midst of a pandemic. We don't know why. Various ones are afflicted. We don't understand. There are those in need. And we ask why. 
by your grace. Help us to trust you. To know that you love your creation. You love your people. This all has a purpose. Purpose that we can't discern at this point. Perhaps never will. But you are love. God is love. And you are light. You are holy. May we bow before you and submit. And may you, by your grace, give us songs in the night. When things are the darkest, may you speak to our hearts. Give us songs that we can sing. Though it may seem strange, I thank you for Elihu. Because in many ways, he's like a mirror. He reflects many of the things that we think, if we don't, in fact, say them. I also thank you that Elihu's words are not the last words that we will hear from you. You will speak. By your grace, we will listen. I thank you for this Lord's Day, the beginning of a new week. We pray again for Kathy Schreiner. We hold her up to you. In your grace, spare her. Give the doctors wisdom. Now we ask that your spirit and your grace would be with us. May we have a realization of that every moment of every day in the coming week. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.